to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome once again to another edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast. And as always, it's another sunny day here in Los Angeles. Since it's summertime, hopefully it's a sunny day for most of you. Yeah, I may have some listeners in areas of the world where it's not summer. Maybe I even have some listeners in the Antarctic or the Arctic where it's freaking freezing in here, Mr. Bigglesworth. Sorry, I had to get my Austin Powers reference in. But, you know, I, I like the sun personally. I like warm weather. It's one of the contributing factors as to why I moved out here to L.A. Oh, a decade or so ago. But there are a lot of people out there concerned that the planet is getting too warm. That human beings are causing this warming through carbon dioxide emissions. And as a result, they often advocate policies, whether it's carbon credits, disallowing coal plants, etc., in order to combat this. As a libertarian, concerned with individual rights, I'm certainly concerned when governments come in and make blanket statements and say, X is caused by Y, therefore we must institute policy Z especially when this stuff comes from the mouths of politicians who have proven to be disingenuous on other subjects, whether it's the reasons for going to war or whether they've just disregarded human liberty in every other aspect of their policies, such as advocating for the war on drugs. And yet I'm supposed to take these people seriously when they proclaim their absolute concern for the future of humanity and how it will all be destroyed by this rapidly heating earth. Now, this is a difficult subject for me to debate because while I'm concerned about government policies coming in and just trampling over human rights in the name of global warming or climate change or what have you, it's hard for me to debate because I'm not a scientist, you know? So I don't really get into these debates so much when it comes to the issues of global warming, of climate change, as they're now sort of referring it to. So I decided to go out and find a scientist, an actual scientist, to discuss this stuff with. My guest today is a world-renowned ecologist and environmentalist who has been involved in the environmental movement for over 40 years. He was a founding member of Greenpeace, where he was an environmental activist until 1986 when he left the group due to ideological differences. Since then, he has gained notoriety as well as scorn from many environmental groups for his dissenting views on issues such as global warming, biotechnology, and nuclear energy, among other issues. He is currently the co-founder, chair, and chief scientist of Green Spirit Strategies, a firm which consults and lobbies on environmental issues. Dr. Patrick Moore, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Nice to be with you, Mark. Well, Dr. Moore, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. And, you know, I do this show to try to highlight issues concerning individual liberty. And we'll get into how I see your work relating to that in a bit. But this isn't a science, though. So just for the sake of our audience, can you explain exactly what the science of ecology is and maybe touch on how and why you first became an ecologist? Absolutely. Well, I was actually at the University of British Columbia studying the life sciences, which I I, I had excelled in science and high school, and I gravitated towards the life sciences of biology, biochemistry, genetics, and the like. And in the mid-1960s, before the word was even known to the general public, I discovered ecology, the science of how everything is interrelated and how we are related to it in a general sense. And ecology is basically about the interactions among all the different species on the earth and how they survive and what food they need and 
food chains and population dynamics and in other words the big picture of all of life and how it operates and I had always thought of science as being a purely technical subject but when I discovered ecology I realized that through science I could gain an insight into the mystery of life on earth and the universe in fact it opened my mind and opened my eyes to a bigger picture and since then I find that by taking that sort of orientation looking at the big picture and how in a sense infinitely complex nature is and the universe is it gives you a sense of wonder in the same way a person who was religious would get and and I grew up in an agnostic family so I didn't I didn't really have that feeling imbued into me as a child except I did grow up in nature in a remote village on the northwest tip of Vancouver Island and my innate love of nature was manifested by discovering the science of ecology and entering into a PhD in ecology in the late 60s at the University of BC. So how did that interest in ecology eventually lead to your involvement with Greenpeace and your environmental activism? What were the main issues that led you to get involved with the burgeoning environmental movement at that time? Well, while I was doing my PhD, this was the height of the Vietnam War, and Canada was basically opposed to the Vietnam War, and I'm from Vancouver, which is an even a more what you'd call liberal part of the country. We were helping bring draft dodgers and deserters in here to get them away from the war. It was also the height of the Cold War and the threat of all-out nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. And the emerging awareness of the environment was just beginning to happen. Small groups were springing up, and I had already joined a couple of them, small environmental groups, and then I heard about a group that was beginning to meet in the basement of the Unitarian Church here in Vancouver called the Don't Make a Wave Committee, and they were a, a group of mostly fairly professional and academically journalism, an eclectic group of fairly intellectual types who wanted to stop United States hydrogen bomb testing in Alaska. And the way they were going to do it was to send a boat there. And I grew up with boats, and I wanted to do something rather than just study ecology in a chair and read books. So I joined that group in the spring of 1971, and six months later, after helping plan that voyage, I was one of the crew of the first voyage of what became Greenpeace to stop U.S. hydrogen bomb testing in Alaska. I ended up getting my Ph.D. in ecology after quite a long political struggle in the university because it was a controversial Ph.D. about industrial pollution, which at that time was controversial, believe it or not. And uh, I... Uh, Stayed there 15 years in the top of the top committee of the organization in the leadership until I left in 1986. So it was a, it was quite a long and amazingly wild ride from a church basement to a group that had a hundred million a year coming in by the time I left. You mentioned there that it was a bit of a struggle with your PhD. Do you think that you know your activism in any way might have influenced? You know, did, did that give you any problems in trying to achieve your PhD? Well, my PhD proved that a large mining company was incorrect in its analysis of the environmental impact or at least of the oceanography of the inlet that it was proposing to dump its mine tailings into. And it was really, it's really interesting because I proved they were dead wrong. But in the bigger picture, actually, that was the right thing to do with the tailings if there was going to be a copper mine. The other alternative was to store them on land. So I learned a really important lesson early on in my environmental career that you can be exactly right about a certain specific thing around a project or around a proposal 
but you can be dead wrong with regard to the overall picture of the situation. It's sort of like being against nuclear energy because there is radiation involved, which of course can be very deadly if it's incorrectly used if there, or if there is an accident like there was at Chernobyl. But in the bigger picture, nuclear energy is one of the cleanest and safest technologies that we have for making large-scale electricity. So I learned that lesson there, but because I was challenging a major corporation on an issue of industrial pollution, a lot of my professors ended up being hired as consultants by the mining company, and that kind of undermined their support for my position. You don't you say. <laughs> yeah, so it was a very political thesis, and it took me a whole year. My thesis committee became deadlocked, three profs against three. The three against me were ones that were now associated with the mining company because uh, they kind of wheedled their way in to my infrastructure there. It took a year, and it took the dean of graduate studies to bring in a seventh independent professor to adjudicate the case and he came down on my side because I was obviously right. Uh, there's there's no question of that. You know, I proved the hypothesis that mine tailings would be thoroughly mixed into the water body rather than right, go and just sink straight down to the bottom like the mining company had contended in the beginning. But the fact that the water body was thoroughly mixed actually prevented any buildup of what could have been any toxins. And so, you know, the solution to pollution is dilution is one of the mantras, it's sort of like in toxicity, the, the poison is in the dose. And uh, I learned a lot, and that's what you're supposed to do when you do a PhD. Now, in doing research for this show, you know, I, I came across a couple pretty interesting incidents that you were involved with during your activism. One was when you were involved protesting the Soviet whaling, and you actually had a pretty close encounter with a Soviet whaling fleet. Can you touch on that for a second? Yes, Mark, that was actually over a four-year period. There were four voyages into the North Pacific, the last one from Los Angeles in 79. In 75, we took off out of Vancouver in, a, in, in the 85-foot halibut boat that we had used for the first campaign against hydrogen bomb testing, and we confronted the Soviet whaling fleet, these huge factory whaling ships, and, you know, eight or so smaller but still large compared to us, uh, harpoon boats, fast, low-in-the-water harpoon boats that can actually, you know, go as fast as a whale can flee or faster. And uh, we went out on off California. The, the, the American public had no idea that the Russians were killing sperm whales by the thousands right off the coast, like 30 miles off the coast of California, because the 200-mile limit wasn't in yet then. It was still only 12 miles and uh, the CIA knew about it, though, and the factory whaling ship was bristling with antennas because the KGB was using the whaling fleet as a spying platform while the guys killed the whales. So there's a lot of intrigue involved, and uh, we were the first people, to, you know, most of the Save the Whales movement was marching in the street with placards saying Save the Whales. <laughs> we went out on the high seas and got in front of the harpoons and filmed ourselves doing so with a camera, and one shot that my cameraman, Fred, Easton, my good friend, got. He was focused on the harpoon as Bob and George were in front of the harpoon in the little boat. You could see them come up on a wave and the harpoon was shot and Fred actually followed the harpoon as it went over their heads and into a whale. So this was wow. like about a three-second clip and when we brought it into San Francisco in June of 1975, it went around the world on television and was featured, you know, all three U.S. networks carried it fairly close to the lead. I think Cronkite actually put it as the lead. And uh, 
it made us famous overnight. We were given the keys to San Francisco back. This is back in the height of the hippie days, so it was a crazy and fun time. And uh, we, you know, we back then we we were happy about what we were doing, saving the world. The environmental movement has become a bit for me too sort of hair shirt and sackcloth and ashes. The world is coming to an end, and all this doomsday. Stuff actually, the threat of all-out nuclear war was a lot closer to any doomsday thing that, than what's going on now. And so, we sang songs, we made up whale songs, and we enjoyed each other, and just had a, a really rollicking good time. Like the, the revolution should be a celebration, and that is one of the reasons I've quit the movement is because it became too serious and too political in that in in that sort of hardcore leftist sort of sense, and. And also, you couldn't you couldn't have a, a differing word in your opinion from the dogma that had you know at a certain point it just become rigidified into a kind of ideology rather than being a think tank like it was more in the beginning. Let's get into your split from the environmental movement, or at least from Greenpeace a little more. What what specifically within Greenpeace did you start to see where where you started to really have ideological conflicts with the way things were sort of going in that group? A number of points, Mark, ranging from the overarching to the specific. When we started in Greenpeace, we had a strong humanitarian orientation to save civilization from all-out nuclear war. That's the peace in Greenpeace. The green, of course, is nature. But as we moved along, Greenpeace kind of drifted, you know, as we went into seal and whale campaigns and toxic waste. Eventually, human beings were being portrayed as the enemies of the earth and the enemies of nature, as if humans were separate from nature, and we were all the bad and nature was all the good. And, I mean, I just wasn't into that kind of moral play. Uh, I, I know we are part of nature. Uh, ecology teaches that we're all one and all come from the same life force and Mother Earth and all of that. We're not separate from nature, and we're not all evil, and nature's not all good, if you want to moralize about it. So I had to leave because I saw it drifting too much in that direction, and it was not my bag. Uh, and in another overarching sense, I had four years earlier from when I left in 86 been to an international environmentalist conference in Nairobi where I first heard the term sustainable development, and that caused a light to go on in my head. I realized, wow, there's a bigger picture here. The real challenge is to take these environmental values which we have been building and creating in the public consciousness, and figure out how to successfully incorporate them into the economic and social fabric of civilization. Because there are 7 billion people that need food, energy, and materials every day, and you have to take that into account. Whereas many of the environmentalists, especially with this idea now that humans are the enemies of nature, we're not interested in the needs of humans. And... So I couldn't, I just couldn't handle that. And anyways, I knew that there was now a bigger and more important challenge for me. And to move from confrontation politics, now that a majority of people agreed that the environment had to be taken into account in our decisions, it made more sense to sit down with people in industry and academic and government and try to figure out what the solutions were to these problems rather than just hammering people over the head about the problems forever. So that was my sort of overall philosophy. And then because, partly because I ended up by coincidence being the only international director of Greenpeace, there were five of us, who had a formal science education. The others legitimately were political activists, social activists, etc., but mostly with liberal arts backgrounds or no university education at all. And 
they decided that because chlorine was toxic and was part of DDT and part of PCBs and part of dioxin, that chlorine was the common denominator and should be eliminated. In other words, ban chlorine worldwide was the slogan that they were adopting at that time. And I tried very hard on the general sense to say, look, you guys, chlorine is one of the elements in the periodic table. These are the building blocks of the universe. It's the 11th most common element in Earth's crust. And you can't ban an element. It's part of the universe. And besides which, though, even more importantly, I said, adding chlorine to drinking water and swimming pools and spas, etc., is the most important advance in the history of public health. And about 75% of our synthetic pharmaceuticals are made with chlorine chemistry. And chlorine is important to health because it's toxic. Whereas they have this naive dream of ridding the world of everything that's toxic. We need something toxic to kill bacteria that are trying to eat us. And I guess partly also because they didn't care that much about humans and their needs. They said, we don't care about that. We think chlorine is the devil's element, the, again, the morality coming into it. And they call polyvinyl chloride or PVC or what we just call vinyl, they call that the poison plastic when it's about the least toxic thing there is on earth. All our credit cards are made out of it and vinyl records were made out of it and half the furniture you sit on is made out of it. It is not even slightly toxic in any sense of the word. And yet they campaign against it because it has chlorine in it. You might as well campaign against table salt because it's half chlorine too. And so they're on the science. Uh, and another way I put it is you don't have to have a PhD in uh, nuclear physics to want to ban the bomb. You don't have to have a PhD in marine science to want to save the whales. But when it comes to complicated issues of chemistry and biology and toxics and industrial use of chemicals and pesticides and all of these other issues, you do need a grounding in basic chemistry and biochemistry and maybe a little genetics to understand these issues properly and to make good judgments about them. That's a really interesting and important point you made there when you're talking about how humans are a part of nature. And, you know, I used to be, a, probably in my younger days, a, more of a fan of the environmental movement. I was a big fan of Greenpeace. I even sent them money in college and all that. But I started to kind of notice the same thing where everything just seemed to be about something generic called the planet, but then acting as if humans are just this entirely separate entity that have just sort of invaded this planet with no other purpose than to destroy it and, and cause pollution and, and all that kind of thing. But, you know, I mean, we could easily end pollution, end human pollution anyway. Tomorrow, if we wanted to, all we have to do is shut down every factory, you know, end all means of transportation, you know, end all medical industry, end everything that basically human society has advanced to create, to create prosperity and create more life. Problem is, if you do that, most of the population that we have is going to die. So, you know, there is some, there has to be some kind of balance there because humans are not a separate part of nature. Humans are just another part of nature. And I think it's a very important point you make. Uh, let's move on to some of the other environmental issues that you've really been outspoken about. And we'll start with the big one here, and that's global warming. So what are your biggest issues with the way the arguments for global warming, or I suppose climate change, as it's now often referred to, are generally framed in the mainstream? Well, you, you mentioned global warming and climate change. Obviously, global warming means warming. But climate change gets tricky because climate change could be cooling uh, it could be other aspects like precipitation increasing or decreasing because climate is not just temperature. 
so the problem with using the term climate change is it makes it open to so much more interpretation. If we just stick to simple global warming, which is supposed to be caused by our CO2 emissions into the atmosphere, we can then test that a little bit. But when you just say climate change, it makes the, the conversation a lot more complicated and makes it possible to obfuscate. In other words, to say that you know cooling is actually being caused by global warming is sort of what's being said now. There's there's nearly a million square kilometers more ice than normal on the seas of the world today than, than there has been for the average since we started measuring it in 1979. But they're saying that the increased ice in Antarctica, which is where it is increasing, it's increasing more there than it is decreasing in the Arctic. They're saying that that increase in ice is caused by global warming. So in other words, it is very contradictory to suggest to me at least that things getting colder is caused by global warming. But anyways, that's where we're at in the discussion. The biggest problem, though, Mark, is not in the details. It's in, in this kind of bullying approach of saying, look, the science is settled, the facts are in, it's been proven, so why don't you just shut up and go away? And that is kind of the sort of arrogance that you get from these what are supposed to be scientists who have, in fact, become more entertainers, politicians, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, but they're not acting like scientists because it is the first duty of a scientist to be skeptical. And I know for sure that my approach would be the one that Galileo and Copernicus would prefer, for example, an approach in which you're always questioning the underlying assumptions of what you're being told and not just taking things on authority. And these climate scientists, as they call themselves, there is no such thing really as climate science because the climate is so complicated that there are so many disciplines involved in it that to call yourself a climate scientist is almost like saying you are the guru of the world because no one can have a thorough knowledge of all the complexities that go into changing the Earth's climate. There are specialties of geography and geophysics and atmospheric chemistry and solar phenomenon, astrophysics, and cosmic rays are brought into it in terms of forming clouds. And in the final analysis, it is impossible to predict the future climate of the Earth with a computer model because there's too much chaos and not even the most sophisticated computer model can see through that much chaos caused by so many uncontrollable variables that are impinging, some of which we don't even really understand, on the changes that have occurred in the Earth's climate over the billions of years since it started changing at the very beginning of the Earth's existence. Yeah, and as you mentioned, it's this sort of speaking from authority thing that has really caused a red flag for me, I think, on the sort of global warming slash climate change issue, because you'll even see some quote-unquote scientists, politicians, etc. out there comparing anybody who questions the science of global warming they'll compare them directly with Holocaust deniers as if that's the exact same thing, as if it's such a settled absolute fact that it can't even be discussed, questioned or anything like that. And you know, that, that's why I'm really glad that to have you on here to actually just give a different perspective because there's so much information out there. There's so much, I don't know if you want to call it propaganda. I'm sure if there's propaganda on every side of the equation because there are people that, you know, they might, there are probably companies that just want to pollute that don't want climate change to even be discussed or global warming to be discussed. And there's people maybe on the other side that really have certain policies they might want to enact that 
global warming or climate change might help them enact. So really, it's really hard to break through this noise and, and try to find the truth and try to get to the actual science of what's going on. So you know, I just want to touch on a few points that I've seen out there. Is there any truth to the claim that the climate actually, the Earth's climate actually stopped warming like 10 years or so ago? Actually, it's nearly 18 years now, Mark. Oh, wow. Uh, there was, there, there, in the last 100 years or so, there have been two periods of increasing warming on the Earth. The first was between 1910 and 1940, when over a 30-year period, the temperature increased by 0.4 degrees Celsius approximately. Then there was a lull and an actual bit of a cooling during the 50s and 60s into the 70s, when people were actually worried about an impending ice age coming again. Uh, and then about 1970, there was another warming period began, which lasted till about 2000. But really, 96 was kind of the last time it really averagely got warmer. Uh, but there, again, there was a period of an increase of about 0.4 degrees Celsius in that period. And since then, it has been flat, pretty much absolutely flat. Even though in that time period, the last 18 years or so, about one quarter of all the CO2 that humans have ever emitted in the industrial period have been put into the atmosphere because we're putting in so much more now. We're putting in 9 billion tons a year, whereas it was only 6 billion tons a year in the year 2000. So it's really going up at a faster rate now than it ever has. And yet there's been no increase in warming. So if you're looking for a correlation between CO2 emissions and concentration in the atmosphere and temperature, it does not exist right now. And this is what you see if you look back in the whole last half billion years of climate history on Earth since modern life forms emerged in the Cambrian explosion. You do not see a lockstep relationship between CO2 and climate. Sometimes they appear to be correlated, but correlation does not imply causation. You'd have to prove that. And the real problem we have here is that there is no crystal ball. These scientists are, are treating computer models as if they're a crystal ball, which actually give you the ability to see the future. The crystal ball is a mythical object. We have a lot of work to do before we even understand why the climate has been changing through the ages the way it has. We don't really know why this ice age came on two and a half million years ago. And there's another important point. The average member of the public does not realize that we are still in the Pleistocene ice age and that this is simply a pause in glaciations. This is a, an interglacial period. There have been four major ones since the ice age began. But even in this interglacial period, the average temperature of the Earth is only 14.5 degrees Celsius, which is about 58 degrees Fahrenheit. Whereas during the greenhouse ages, which over the last half billion years have been far more common than the ice ages, which come in shorter spurts, that just drastic drops in global temperature that last for a few million years, but the greenhouse ages last for tens of millions of years, and during those times, the Earth's average temperature has been more like 72 degrees Fahrenheit, or 22, even, even, even 74 degrees Fahrenheit, 22 degrees Celsius. So we've seen uh, what we've got now. That's why there's so much ice on the poles, is because we're in an ice age. When we were in the greenhouse ages, there was no ice on the poles. There were giant camels roaming through subtropical forests on Canada's Arctic islands just five million years ago, before this present ice age began. 
So looking back at history for these millions of years, it is an absolute fact that both temperature and carbon dioxide are lower now than they have been through almost all the history of life on Earth. And that is the perspective that people need to get. The other perspective they need to get is that carbon dioxide, which the true believers are now calling carbon in order to make it seem like it's soot or something. I don't know why they call it carbon because it isn't. It's carbon dioxide. That would be like saying it was hydrogen when in fact it was water. <laughs> water is H2O. You don't say water is oxygen. And so you shouldn't say that carbon dioxide is carbon. And But carbon dioxide has another side to it besides this evil pollutant causing runaway global warming, as they like to tell us. The fact of the matter is, is carbon dioxide is the most important food for all life on Earth. It is the basis of sugars, which is the basis of all carbon-based life, the energy for the photosynthesis takes carbon dioxide and water and makes sugars, glucose. In fact, the same kind of sugar as we would have on our table or put in our baking. And that sugar is the, the basic energy for all of life, and the carbon in it came from carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Meanwhile, the Environmental Protection Agency is ruling that carbon dioxide is a pollutant under the Clean Air Act, rather than recognizing it as the most important nutrient for all life on Earth. It is not a pollutant. It is not toxic. It could be four times higher than it is today, and it still wouldn't be toxic. It could be ten times higher than it is today, and it still wouldn't be toxic. As a matter of fact, all the plants would grow better if it was four times higher. That's about the optimum. If you, if you Google optimum CO2 level for plant growth, you will find that it is about 1,500 parts per million, and that is why greenhouse growers virtually all put the exhaust from their heaters, from their gas or wood heaters, into the greenhouse to elevate the CO2 level two or three times or even four times in there, and they get 50 to 100% more growth in their crop by doing so. And as we are adding more CO2 to the atmosphere now, there is a noticeable greening, especially in arid areas like the Sahel and Western Australia and the Great Plains of North America. There is a noticeable greening that the main science body in Australia, CSIRO, has published now. If you Google the greening of the earth, you will see the map where they are showing the fertilization effect of carbon dioxide on the vegetation of the earth. And I know this all sounds so exactly opposite of what we are being told, but I am afraid the emperor has no clothes, and it is not good enough for President Obama to say, science is science. That's what he said. He said, it's absolutely proven now. We know that carbon dioxide is causing dangerous climate change, and the science is settled. That appeal to authority is not good enough when it comes to an issue on which we are already spending hundreds of billions of dollars a year to prevent something that will probably be almost entirely beneficial. That's kind of ironic when a guy who's only in his life has only been a lawyer and a politician to say science is science. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's another thing that really strikes me about this whole global warming debate and the way it's framed. There's this assumption that warming is definitely bad, that um, a carbon increase is definitely bad, and that if that's true, then it must mean that cooling is good. But to me, I mean, just from what you're describing now with, with you know, the, how we used to, the Earth used to be a lot warmer and there used to be a lot of plant growth and a lot of life in other areas of the Earth where now it's just covered in ice, such as in Antarctica. To me, it seems like the Earth cooling would be the much more concerning kind of uh, direction if that was the way things were going. 
Yes, Mark. Both for human civilization and the environment in general, cooling is far more to be feared than warming. If you look at the world as it is today, where is most of the biodiversity of life? It is in the tropics. When you move from the tropics into the temperate zone where you have freezing occurring in the winter, frost and ice are the enemies of life because the biodiversity just drops dramatically as soon as you come to climates where it freezes because only a very small percentage of total species have been able to adapt to freezing temperatures. We've done it by inventing fire, clothing, and building shelters. Otherwise, we couldn't live in the climates we do. I'm in Vancouver, which most people think is a lovely place, but if it wasn't for clothing, fire, and shelter, you could not live here as a human being under any circumstances. Some animals hibernate in the winter to get away from the frost. Plants have learned strategies to move the water out of their cells into the interstitial space in order so it can freeze without damaging the organelles inside the cell. Each cell becomes like a little antifreeze body. So you go closer to the pole, though. Just keep moving towards the North Pole. And how much biodiversity is there at the North Pole? You know, you, you won't find much of anything there. Around the fringes of Canada's Arctic Islands and Siberia, you have the polar bears and the seals and these other species. But there are, there are a very few number of species compared to what you would find in a tropical rainforest or a tropical savanna. So we need to have that perspective. The other thing is, if it gets colder it will really radically reduce agricultural output. And maybe that wouldn't have hurt so much when there was only a billion people, but now there's seven billion. And warming and additional CO2 will definitely increase agricultural output, whereas cooling will definitely reduce it. There's simply no doubt about that. If you have shorter growing seasons and cooler summers, you will have a reduction in agricultural output, and that would not be good for people and also it would not be good for the environment because it would make even more of the land into tundra and covered in ice. Despite your skepticism regarding global warming and you know climate change and the way that's being pushed, you do come out and, and say that it, it is indeed a good idea to reduce our reliance upon fossil fuels. Can, so can you touch upon why you do see there a reason to legitimately try to reduce the use of fossil fuels and what new technologies emerging do you see that could actually help us do that and, and help us get clean energy in the future? One of the reasons to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels is air pollution, although that has been improved dramatically in the industrialized countries with you know adding on fairly expensive pollution control equipment that works. And so, but there is still an issue of the impact on air quality. Another important issue is the fact that these are limited resources and they're very precious and it would be good to conserve them. Coal, for example, which is now being used to produce a lot of the world's electricity, and it is one of the lower-cost ways of doing so, but it would be good if we could save some of that to make liquid fuels for transportation in the future, because the liquid fuel, oil, will not probably last anywhere near as long as the coal resources, and there's, there's not as much of it, it would appear, uh, and natural gas, the same, and coal can also be turned into gas for you know cooking and heating. So there are good reasons to conserve fossil fuels. We also have a lot of our eggs in one basket. About 85% or even more of world energy is from fossil fuels. So my position is where there are cost-effective alternatives that don't use fossil fuels or use less fossil fuels, we should move in that direction. The example being replacing coal plants with nuclear plants. 
Now, I'm totally against this idea of a war on coal. It's like a war on coal as if it's a war of attrition and as if there's no real plan for what to substitute the coal with, except the pipe dreamers think it can be done with wind and solar, which is absolutely impossible because they don't work 24-7 like coal does. As a matter of fact, every time you build a wind farm, you have to build a coal plant or a nuclear plant to back it up when the wind isn't blowing. So wind and solar don't get rid of the traditional technologies of fossil fuel, uh, hydroelectric, and nuclear are the three main ways to produce reliable electricity. So hydroelectric, where it's where it's feasible, because it, it isn't universally feasible because it depends on rainfall and geography. You can't do it in a flat place with no rain. But you can build nuclear plants anywhere in the world. They're not dependent so much on location, although it's better to put them where 50-foot tsunamis aren't going to come. <laughs> but in, in, you know, in the general sense, we could replace a lot of the fossil fuel for electricity with nuclear power. And so that'd be a direction. Another one is home heating and heating buildings in general with natural gas. That can be replaced with ground source heat pumps. And especially if the ground source heat pumps or geothermal heat pumps, as they're called, using renewable energy from the earth, then that's even better if that heat pump is running on nuclear or hydroelectric instead of fossil fuel. You drastically reduce fossil fuel use because buildings are responsible if you count the electricity coming into them and the fuel being burnt in them for 35 to 40% of all our fossil fuel consumption. Uh, transportation being right up there in that same sort of category and then industry uh, uses a lot as well. So there are real practical ways in which we can reduce fossil fuel consumption and I'm not talking about reducing CO2 emissions as being the main target here. The main target is to diversify our energy mix to use cleaner energy sources and to conserve precious fossil fuels for longer if there are cost-effective ways to replace them. You know, it's really interesting because some of these renewable sources of energy, which you mentioned, such as wind and solar, those seems to be the ones that government seems to be pushing the most upon us. They, they're setting up you know, wind farms everywhere. They're subsidizing solar energy. They're saying this is what we need to do. As opposed to nuclear energy, which you've mentioned as the most efficient, the most clean, that seems to be the one government is basically blocking. I mean, I don't, I don't know when the last time a new nuclear plant was built in the United States. So do you have any insight into how and why government policies are actually negatively influencing the ways in which energy might develop on its own if, if the government wasn't sort of intervening and, and creating its own little rules about which, which sources of energy are better or which are worse or what have you? This is one of the most destructive features right now is this energy policy push towards wind and solar. A sustainability fellow in, on Long Island described solar panels to me as a wealth-destroying technology, and that's exactly what's going on here. I mean, the United States and Germany and these countries are just lucky they're so wealthy that they can afford to waste that much money and still get by. But it's not going to work in Africa or in the Asian countries unless they get wealthy enough to waste a lot of money too. It is a fantasy world that is being promoted by the green movement, as they call themselves, whereas there are so many more effective ways to reduce fossil fuels. If that's your objective, well, their objective is to reduce CO2 emissions, but never mind that. Um, if you want to do that, nuclear is so much more effective bang for your buck than either wind or solar, by far. And yet they have the nerve to say nuclear is too expensive 
because what they're doing there, they've lost all the other arguments about safety, etc., because no one's ever even been injured by a nuclear plant, and a hundred of them are running in the United States. No one's been injured in the United States by a nuclear plant. Or even Fukushima, no one died there, and no one died at Three Mile Island, and Chernobyl was a, a really stupid designed reactor that the Soviets built a bunch of in the Cold War, uh, which actually had, they knew that it had the potential to blow up like that, uh, and still built them because it was cheap. So they took a shortcut, probably so they could put more of their money into building up the arms race or whatever. But mistakes have been made, but we've learned a lot from those as well, and nuclear is the way to go. And yet there's still this big scare campaign about it. And you name France. France has one of the lowest electricity costs in all of Europe. And right next door, Germany has one of the highest electricity costs. Germany has 55% fossil fuel electricity. They are phasing out their nuclear plants and building all this super expensive renewables, which doesn't work. Like solar is solar in Germany is 8% capacity factor, which means 92% of its potential capacity is not being realized because the sun isn't shining. Because it's a very cloudy country, along with having night, like most other countries do. Uh, and wind is more efficient, but still very expensive. And so the utilities are being required to buy the expensive wind and solar when it's available, thus making their own gas and coal plants much less efficient because they're not running full out. And the dysfunctionality of the German energy industry is such that they are increasing their CO2 emissions each year now, while the United States it's falling due to fracking, replacing coal with natural gas, which is only half, less than half the amount of CO2 as produced by coal per kilowatt hour. Germany has just banned fracking until 1921 for no good reason whatsoever. Uh, it, it, it's just as safe in Germany as it is in the United States, where it's been demonstrated by EPA and everyone else to be safe. So there's a lot of dysfunctionality in energy policy in this world, and I blame this sort of wide-eyed utopianism of thinking that... And, and the other thing that's interesting is wind and solar energy are not made with renewable energy. There's nothing renewable about a solar panel or a wind turbine, whereas Biomass energy is, in fact, made with renewable energy. Like if you use wood, for example, to produce energy, or if, or, or if you use palm oil or corn or sugarcane to produce your energy, you are actually using your renewable resource to produce the energy. With wind and solar, you're having to build all of this non-renewable infrastructure in order to capture the renewable energy. Patrick Moore, thank you so much for taking the time out to join me today. And I really appreciate that you provide sort of a different perspective on a lot of these environmental issues. And, hey, you know, we all live here on this planet, so I do think it's important not to generally pollute and destroy the world, but it's equally important to realize that humans are a part of that world. And it's important that we're not designing policies that actually damage mankind and harm human development in the name of the environment, especially when a lot of the science justifying these policies is a bit shaky at best. So before I let you go, why don't you just take a second to let everyone out there know where they can find your work, how they can get in touch with you, and, and feel free to plug any projects that you're currently working on. Well, we haven't talked about it, Mark, but right now my main work is on the charity I've founded called Allow Golden Rice Now. And if you go to www.allowgoldenrice.now.org, you will find this program that we're doing. It's been very successful. We're reaching millions of people with a positive message about a genetic form of rice that can actually prevent 2 million kids from dying each year from vitamin A deficiency. So 
I'd ask you to go there. My personal website is ecosense.me, www.ecosense, as in sensible, .me, and there you'll find a lot of my writings and the basic philosophy. And the book I wrote that was revised last year, the 2013 revised edition, is titled Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout, The Making of a Sensible Environmentalist, and it's available on Amazon in both print and ebook editions. And there you will see my whole story and all of the issues being discussed as we have touched on today. Dr. Patrick Moore, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Take care. Thanks, Mark. We'll be back after a little break. Do you want your kids to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to you through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, blowback, and non-interventionist foreign policy? What if I told you this book is real and available? What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? The book is Meet Ron Paul, and you can get your copy today at lionsofliberty.com slash Paul. As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Meet Ron Paul and keep the liberty movement moving. Hey guys, Mark Clare here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you the Morning Roar! That's right, every Monday to Friday we'll have a brand new edition of the Morning Roar, where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media, or even in your typical social media newsfeed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty, and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at LionsOfLiberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily. Chris Rossini's new book, Set Money Free. What every American needs to know about the Federal Reserve. With a special forward by Ron Paul. It has easy to understand questions and answers. Buy Set Money Free on Amazon.com. Chris Rossini's Set Money Free. Set Money Free. Set Money Free. Your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, guys, I hope you learned a lot from my interview today with Dr. Patrick Moore. I know I did. I think he's a really interesting guy. And, you know, nobody can accuse him of not being someone who's passionate about the environment. I think his early activism, his time in Greenpeace is evidence of that. I mean, the guy tried to save whales from the freaking Soviets. What more can you ask for? But, you know, Dr. Moore stands out to me as someone who really tries to use science and the logic that derives from that science to come to his conclusions, whereas many people just seem to take the word of politicians or pundits or government-approved, quote-unquote, climate scientists, which, as Dr. Moore mentioned, is not even a real thing, (laughs) who scream that humans are just destroying the planet and therefore we need to enact all these policies to prevent that. 
Now, the idea that the humans are the enemy of the Earth is absolutely repugnant. Humans are not just a part of the Earth. In my view, the greatest thing the Earth has to offer. Humans can use logic, reason, ingenuity to create things, to create prosperity for each other that no other species is capable of. You know, this is something that should be embraced, not rejected. I'm still not a scientist, but I hope this interview gave some people a little bit of an insight into some of the false narratives that politicians, speaking from authority, try to push out there that may not necessarily be grounded in scientific reality. You know, I want to live on a planet that isn't polluted, that isn't unnecessarily destroying wildlife and plant life and that kind of thing and other elements of nature. But at the same time, I want humanity to flourish. I want humanity to prosper and thrive. And we can't find a balance between these two without trying to look at the real science, not just, you know, pseudo scientific rhetoric spouted by politicians. I hope my interview with Patrick Moore gave you guys another insight into these environmental issues. And I promise next week we'll get back to all this hardcore liberty stuff that you guys come here for, I swear. But until then, you know what I'm going to ask you, right? I want you to keep living on this warm planet and to live long and live free. John Dawson.